Welcome to the 1% Mindset Podcast, where we know that everything starts from the shoulders up before it starts from the shoulders down. We believe in discipline and hard work. We also understand that it really takes a mindset to achieve anything that you go after. What's going on? This is Mike with the 1% Mindset Podcast. I have the beautiful Phoenix White here with me. How are you doing? I'm really good. Really? You broke up. Are you still there? Yes, I'm really good. You know what? I pushed that button by trying to stretch out my screen. So I'm sorry about that. No, 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 that's fine. You know, in in the the spirit of transparency, I I, I even want to mention, I actually did... uh, I did interview you, um, for you guys who aren't there, I did interview you a few days ago, and because of some technical difficulties on my end, uh, you could hear me and all the beautiful things I was saying, but I, I definitely wasn't the star of the show, right? It was, it was all about you, and we couldn't hear anything you said. So um, it's great to have you back, right? Of course. <laughs> uh, of course. I, I, I do appreciate it. And uh, just... I just kind of want to start off, you know, how I was introduced uh, to Miss Phoenix White. So every Tuesday I do a book club. And for this mm-hmm. month, for the month of October, for the month of October, um, a young lady who was leading it this, uh, this month, she recommended a book, Redefining Strong, right? And, I, you know, I'm open to anything. So as I started to read this book, I was like, wow, this is, this is amazing. Like a great story of um, someone who just kind of came up in in the industry had a lot of trials and tribulations um Mm -hmm. and when i spoke to her like how did she even hear about this book she told me a friend that recently committed suicide recommended this to her right yeah which and it was powerful to me because in the book you speak about suicide and you speak about mental health and you know that's you know a really big piece of kind of who who you were so like with that being said, like what does what does that, that mean to you as far as just someone who who's going through it? Like what's your advice to them? How did you kind of get through that funk that you're in? And we can go a little deeper as to why, but for someone who is in that space of just not feeling good to kind of how you are now, like what was that transition like for you? Shoot, I'm still trying to get past the girl who committed suicide. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, it's heartbreaking. Okay. Well, for me, I think that you get to a point to where when you're going through it, it's like you're done. You know, like mentally you're done. Mentally, spiritually, emotionally. And I like to call it numb. So I know when I spoke to you before, I was saying that when I get to a place to where I feel nothing, when I feel numb, I don't feel safe with myself. You know, I want to feel something. I don't care if it's sad or happy or moody or whatever it is. But if I feel nothing, that numb feeling is when you start to just be like, I'm done with everything. And I think that's the time where you absolutely have to reach out to people. And I think that's what really helped me when I got to that suicidal space, headspace, where it started flashing in my mind. I started seeing pictures of myself walking out into traffic or taking some pills or, you know, like I, I saw these things, like your mind just starts playing all these crazy dark tricks on you and making you feel like 
there is nothing less like left, you know? And so where I, where I think it really, really helped me is I reached out to about four people. I just sent quick little text messages and said, I'm done. I'm feeling like this. And had they not responded, I don't know if I would have, I don't know if I would still be here or not. But I've always taught myself that when you're not feeling a certain type of way to reach out to somebody else. To kind of not snatch you back, but to kind of slowly guide you back from the cliff, in a sense, because you're like at the edge. So I reached out to my, my best friend, Janelle, um, Lamont Rucker is one of my other best friends, D.B. Woodside, and an artist named B. Slade, who's also one of my really, really good friends. So what they did combined helped me. So my one friend, she said, I'm going to send you to go see um, a therapist. Like, would you be interested in that? And she was very gentle. Um, with, with saying, you know, just to go talk to somebody, like nothing big, just to go have a conversation. I'm just like, whatever, but I'm not going to look, you know, I'm not going to do work to go find them, but I'll go if you find somebody. Cause you don't know where to start. You're numb. You don't, you can't pray, you know, you can't, uh, you don't really want to talk. You don't really want to do anything. So it's, it's good on two sides. It's good to have people who need to learn how to be gentle with other people come and talk to you about certain things and just be able to be a listening ear. And it's also a good prompt to say, I need to actually reach out to somebody other than myself because staying in your head is dangerous. Mm. You know, like we can come up with all kinds of stuff. You just sit there in that dark room. Yeah. Mm -mm. yeah staying in your head is dangerous. So you have to reach out to people. So me going and seeing a therapist, I think therapy is the, best thing I could have ever done for myself and um going and talking to someone that day as I had mentioned before is it changed my life because she made me feel like I was normal mm. whereas you start feeling like you're a little crazy and you're lost and like you know why me and all these different things that are going around you know going on in your head at that time mm. when I talked to that therapist that day she basically said some words that were so simple she was like nobody would feel any different if they were going through what you were going through. Are, are there any practices that you, that you take part in to keep yourself in a good mental space? Of course, you have to do it every day. I think everybody has to do that. You know, you have to find something that keeps you going. So like for me, um, I have some stuff in my book um, that also is like a list that makes you feel good. Um, things that you like. A lot of people don't know what they actually like outside of what they do, like their work and you know what I mean? So like, or going to the movies or something, but like if you, you make a list of everything that you love, that makes you feel good. It could be dancing. It could be going to a lake or a beach. It could be watching a funny movie. It could be like simple. It's like turning on your TV and watching a show to change what you're thinking about because your focus is on something else. It could be working on a project. It could be listening to inspirational stuff. I have certain specific songs that just make me feel good. Like there's a song by CeCe Winans called I Am. Um, if I turn on that song, I always feel happy. It's, it's just, it just does. It lifts my mood. So just finding out what makes you happy. Also the type of energy that you're constantly around. I used to be around a lot of, energy suckers 
where they would suck the life out of me. I could be sad and going through my own thing, but they're just dumping and dumping and dumping and dumping. And me being super empathic, I'm just absorbing all of their stuff on top of my stuff, trying to be the friend. So just even, even getting to the point to where saying no becomes a part of your daily practice, which is hard for most people, but just saying like, I can't talk to you right now. <laughs> like, I'm focused on myself today. Like there are some times where I really don't answer the phone because I'm in my own space or if I'm in a good space, like I, I got into it with uh, my mom. It was, it was not that long ago where she was going through something, but I didn't have the mental capacity to help her through it at that time. So I said, I just can't talk about that right now. I'm gonna have to postpone this for another time. Do, do, you, do you feel that, is there a feeling of uh, maybe disappointment that you're letting someone someone down? Like, you know, yes. like, like your mom, you know, who yeah. wanted to vent to you. You feel bad. I felt so bad, but then it's like, well, what does this do to me mentally when I take on too much? Mm -hmm. Like, because then I'm not good with me. Now I'm in the bed and now I'm depressed. You're feeling better. It has transferred. You know, it's like I, like, and I, especially when you're in a high vibrational place, when you're trying to manifest a lot of things, when you're trying to pull in good energy, you're trying to save yourself. Sometimes you have to just focus on yourself. You know how when you're in an airplane and they always tell you to put the mask over yourself before your kids and it feels so selfish. It's like, well, how can you help somebody else if you die? Or if you can no longer breathe while you're in the air? It's high up. Maybe if you just hurry up, put it over yourself so that you can actually have some clear oxygen, then you can go around and save the rest of the world. But you can't do that if you're not there. You don't have it. So, you know, you want to be able to be effective, but you have to save yourself first. And it may sound selfish, but it is the greatest thing that you could ever do. Nice. So before we get too deep into your story, I want to kind of knock out a few things. Um, yeah. One, I had one of the one of the people in my book club. They had a question. So okay. They they said uh, they asked, "Where did you learn about like meditation and healing? Did you have like a mentor, teacher, where you learned that from? Like, how did you kind of get into that spiritual zen of you know meditation and healing, being around the water? Like, where did that kind of come?" From? I did. So I did have a teacher. His name is Jonathan Harris, and he's still my friend to this day. Um, but in addition to that, how I sort of was introduced to it was through yoga. So I was looking online one day, you know how they have these uh, meetups and things like that that are free? Yeah. I was just searching for, for something to help me. It was like, I would type in spirituality or I would type in healing or I would type in like just keywords. And you'd be surprised how many things just pop up that are actually happening in your area that are free. So I started with going to like a yoga class. Um, so I wanted to try something different. And then that's how I actually met uh, Jonathan is he had a meetup and I went to that one day. So um, there's so many things on YouTube. You can do a meditation class on, on YouTube in your living room or in your, in, in water. So actually that is what I did. I would play, YouTube meditations and I would sit in the bath because my brain doesn't like to stop 
in just walking around or sitting in a room. I'm so completely bored and I'm all over the place. So a lot of people think that meditation is just clear your mind and don't think of anything. And it's not really just like that. It, that's, there's so many different forms of meditation. So I don't want people to get the idea that you have to meditate for hours and be a yogi, you know, and just chant. It's, it's not like that. It's literally just being still and allowing yourself to listen and allow whatever thoughts to come in. You don't have to clear your mind. You just have to focus on breathing. All those thoughts and ideas and visions, capture them. You know what I'm saying? Let them come in and flow out. Like, let it do what it does. I think we try to control everything so much. And so I sit in water to mm. meditate. That's why I, I actually do it in the, or like when I take a shower or a bath. Like, that's when I like meditate. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Any other way, like, I, I get distracted by too many things. So, right. So that's perfect. The perfect way to do it. So in water, because I, I love water and the warmth and, you know, when we go deep into the story, you'll kind of, we'll kind of unfold that as well. But warm water is, mm-hmm. it calms me. An- another thing in your book that you, that you have a few times are, are different affirmations. That right. And why that's powerful um, was actually I sent your self-love affirmation to a friend of mine's yesterday. She was going oh. through through a hard time and I just screenshotted um, the, the few pages that I, I read um, the e-version of your of your book on iBooks mm-hmm. and so I screenshotted like the self-love affirmation. How often like do you go through or do you say these affirmations and you know I know you have a way with words you're a writer um, is that something that like how did that kind of come about and how often do you say these affirmations whether it's you know the self-love one or the other one that you have in the book? It, honestly, I would love to say I do it every day, but I don't. I uh, have seasons where I need it more than others. Mm-hmm. So there are some times where you could just be feeling like crap mm-hmm. and you need to pump yourself back up. So sometimes I will cuss myself out. I'll be like, what is wrong with you? Do you know who you are? Get up from here. Stop acting like you don't know who you are. You know what I'm saying? Like I will do like sometimes you need that kick in the ass sort of energy. Yeah. And sometimes you need, I'm worthy, I love myself, but it's like, if you don't feel it, it does really nothing for you. Yes, the words are seeds, you know, but, if, but the feelings, that's what causes the real transformation. Mm. You know, so it's like planting the seeds with your words, but you gotta feel that thing. So like, sometimes you gotta pump yourself up. You can't just be like, I'm worthy. I deserve it. I'm worthy. I deserve it. I, I work hard. I'm going to use this to help other people. I'm going to be great. I am great. I am love. I deserve love. I deserve to be loved the way I want to be loved. You know, I deserve everything it is that I want. So sometimes you just got to go a little nuts. Yeah, no. Like uh, that. It's, it's a whole rant, yeah, you know, so. That energy is great too. And that's it what depends on what you need. You have to feel it in order for it to transform. It's, it's really important. So like, yes, we can use those words and we just start with the reading of it. But the second level of it is to get to feeling it. Mm. Like that's how you manifest change. You have to feel it. Even when it's not there, you got to make yourself feel it. Like you got to see that thing while you're saying it. And then you start to attract it. Mm. 
So I got through all the really good, fun, simple stuff, right? right. With your story. Um, but it gets a little deeper, a lot deeper. <laughs> it, gets, it gets a lot deeper. A lot deeper. Um, and I want to start a little bit with the beginning, just to kind of set the foundation of, you know, kind of where you started. Now, um, in the beginning, in the beginning of the book, uh, you explained that you were taken away from your, from your home. Um, right. Your father was accused of like sexually assaulting you. So you end up in a foster home and then end up living in Texas with some relative that you didn't know at the time. What was that experience like? Um, <clears throat> I think any time that you are taken from your family and you don't know why, because when I was younger, I was about, I want to say 11, when you're younger and you're taken away from your family and you have no idea why, you're just kind of like, what in the world is going on here? And then you're sent to a foster home and you're just like, what is happening to my life? Like, you still have no answers. We didn't know anything. I never knew anything until I got sent to Texas. First, we think we're going home and we're sent to Texas right after to what was called like a summer vacation mm -hmm. that turned into two years. You know what I mean? So we're thinking we're going to go see our grandfather. And when I thought of Texas, I thought of like, you know, horses and ranches and you know what I'm saying? Like some big, beautiful houses on this big ranch. And, you know, my mom was bright skinned. So I, I thought my grandfather might be white, you know? So it was like, I had this, this is how much I knew nothing about these people. I knew nothing. I didn't know what they looked like. I didn't know what skin color they were. I didn't even know what ethnicity they were. I never even knew about them. I didn't know them. Hmm. So they were strangers. So you, you were, you're one of three. You're the oldest. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned in the book, as they were taking you, um, you saw like your sisters, were, your, your younger sisters, they were crying, they were pouring, and you said you felt nothing. Right. You actually said earlier, when you feel nothing, that's when you're afraid. Mm -hmm. I, obviously, maybe as an older version of you, it's maybe a different feeling. What was that? It's different. It's different. So when you're younger and you're the oldest, I think it was more of being the oldest and not allowing my emotions to surface. It was just more of just confusion. And so all I could do, think to do was to be the oldest and console my sisters. Well, you know, I, I remember looking back out of the window in the police car and just seeing my mom in the driveway screaming and crying as we were pulling off and driving away. But it's like, I don't have any idea what's going on. All I know is my, it, it was a traumatic experience because everybody's being snatched out the house and pulled away and, you know, put into the car and all these different things are happening. So it's, it's traumatic, mm -hmm. but I have like a three-year-old sister and a six-year-old sister, you know, like, or they're not even three yet. I think my baby sister is maybe one or two. So we're all three years apart. So it was just, what do you do? Like, all I could do is bounce into being the oldest. So I stopped feeling, I didn't have any emotion. I just wanted to make sure they were cool. And I felt like if I were calm, they would be calm. You know, and that's just, that's what I clicked into. The, 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 
big sister kind of, you know, the nurturer being there. Okay, that I mean, that makes sense. So you, you went into that phase of, of numb, since sent off, you end up in Texas with people you absolutely had no idea who they were. Right. What was your experience like there, right? So, you know, at that time, you're, you're what, eight years old, maybe? Eight, nine yeah, eight, nine. So you're, you're still very young, you know, still a lot of learning, still a lot of growing, still a kid, right? You, you played, the, you did an excellent job of being the, the big sister and being numb and not expressing emotion during a very traumatic time, very traumatic experience. Now you're in Texas. Mm -hmm. Kind of walk me through your, your greeting process and how things were there. So we got greeted by my grandfather who looked nothing like my imagination expected. Mm -hmm not even close and i just remember we were driving from for hours and hours and hours from the airport to get to this backwoods area of texas that i didn't even know existed on the map it's called bonware texas and <laughs> right and so, right <laughs> so um when we get there i remember the first couple of days my grandfather um, introduced us to some of our family members who lived on that same road. So imagine an entire long dirt road and they're all your relatives that you've never met. And they were like trailer homes and trailer homes. It's literally a dirt road. I'll send you a picture of it after our phone call, but it's literally a dirt road. Okay. Everybody on the entire dirt road is your family members and the church is at the end of the corner. So like the, that. So the experience was different coming because you being in California. We're from California, all the way live San Diego, California. Going to the backwoods of Texas. I don't even think I had seen a trailer house before. Mm. And so I remember my first real experience with my grandfather was as, was him going out and breaking this branch off of a tree and beating us with a branch for not eating sardines. Nice. We're from California. <laughs> we don't eat fish with heads still on them. <laughs> you know, and so me and my sister were just like, we're not eating that. There's, there was nothing in us that could have made us eat a sardine from a can. And so he, he felt like we were wasting his food. And so he went, grabbed a branch, not a switch. You know, there's switches. Yeah. A whole branch thing, like and he beat us with branches for not eating sardines. And I just, I think an anger and a resentment and a lot of things kind of built up in, in me. It's like, why would you send me here? Like, why would I be sent here with these people that are gonna abuse us, you know? Um, and then after that, we, we went to, we, while he was at work, I was like, we're getting out of here. I was just always a planner. And so me and my sister, we were young. We packed up all of our stuff in our suitcases and we rolled it up the dirt hill to another family member we had met, house. And that's when they did the same thing to me. And they were just like, your dad did this to you. And you know, you liked it. And just, I had no idea why we were there. So they're telling me basically what, the reason why we were there but they're telling me that i was the cause of the reason why i was there i was the cause of my family being broken up 
that I did things that I never actually did. I have, I have no idea what these people are talking about, but that is how they stamped me. And that's what they branded me with upon arrival. So I instantly lost my voice. If I try to defend myself, shut up. You just fast and you're just lying. You're just, these people don't know me. I don't know them. I barely even learned their names before they're branding me as this person as being uh, the reason for my family falling apart and blaming my dad, who was one of my best friends, who was off to war. So it was um, heartbreaking, but also it started my life on a path of, of vibrating a certain energy or, or digesting a seed or seeds that were being planted by other people. And it took away my voice. It took away, well, at that time, I got it back. Welcome but back. it takes, yeah, right. So, but it, it, it takes away your voice where you don't feel like you can even defend yourself. Because nobody will listen to you. Nobody is hearing you. Nobody cares. So you're eight years old, eight, nine years old. You're there. Right. You lost your voice from that early age, a time where you know, you're supposed to, supposed to speak, work on, you know, just, communication skills, the, the mechanisms of that, that was gone. You were labeled essentially as um, you know, anything negative. Yeah, said whatever you want, yeah. <laughs> you know, and you were the reason at eight years old why your family broke up and you had to come live on this dirt road. Eight years old. A lot to, a lot to take in at that age. Right. From eight, so you said you were there for about two years, you ended up right. going back. Right. Uh, back home to San Diego. My dad came and got us. <laughs> nice. So he, so he came and got you guys. At what point do you feel, at least within your younger years, did you feel like you ever got your voice back at that time throughout your younger to maybe teenage years? Mm -mm. No. I think that I just constantly found myself in bad situations, making bad decisions, trusting people that were nice to me or who would listen to me or um, even though I wasn't mature enough mentally or spiritually to to really understand like what I was going through I didn't really know I, you know I, I had a time where I was very like just rebellious and uh, maybe bitter you know once I look back now but I didn't have any other tools. I didn't have a set of spiritual tools. I didn't have um, people that I felt like I could talk to. So I started writing and I started creating music and songs and poems and short stories. So I started to live in sort of an alternate world creatively. Did your relationship with your dad change once you got back? Since I, he was, he, again, he was accused of, you know, sexually assaulting you. And he ended up bringing you back. You know, everything was cleared up. Did anything change when he got, when you guys went back to San Diego? Your relationship, how he interacted with you? I didn't notice it then, but in hindsight, um, he wouldn't hug us as much. He wouldn't, you know, I think he was more feel, fearful of showing affection to us. I think that he was more angry 
and more abusive, but unconsciously abusive. Like, I don't think he felt like he was being abusive in his mind, which I don't know how he couldn't, but at the same time, that's also the way he was taught. So it's kind of like different tools are passed down from your parents. So it's like, you can only use the tools that you have available to you. So um, he, was, he, was, he was abusive, he was angry. Um, there was a lot of distrust with my mother and him. You know, that whole little separation and breakup happened. And it was a lot of separation. There's a lot of sending us back and forth, my mom's house, my dad's house, my mom's house, my dad's house, you know, out of anger. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think just being caught up in the midst of their war sort of can make you feel unwanted, even when you feel loved. So it felt like my parents loved me. I just didn't feel like they wanted us. Does that make sense? That, no, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And again, as, as a child, I can only imagine like what that did. And you, know, you kind of speak about the next major event that, that happened to you in your book. Uh, you graduate high school mm-hmm. and uh, you have a ton of family celebrate. And throughout that celebration process, you still felt isolated. You still felt alone. You still felt unwanted kind of what was that experience like? Everyone's coming to celebrate your accomplishment. You think everyone's coming to celebrate your accomplishment. So you have this expectation of, wow, people are going to come see me. They're going to come support me. They're going to come celebrate me. You know, I'm on the news. You know, I'm being like freaking celebrated. You know, like everybody's talking about it and the film crew is coming to my house to film me because of what I accomplished and all this stuff. I don't have any recollection of anybody even talking to me. Like saying anything. It's almost like there was a family reunion happening at my graduation and I wasn't really there. That's how it felt. They came to see each other. And that just for the people, you said you had the film crew coming, things you've accomplished. Yeah. What did you accomplish so people don't think, you know, you just graduated high school and... (laughs) No, it's okay. Um, So what I did is I actually had won my school's title, but I also wanted to do music. So I had left school to go do music. And so there was um, a program where I said, if I finish all of my credits, can I come back to the school and graduate? And it was like, oh, you know, you're going to be too far behind and all this stuff. It's impossible for you to do seven credits in a week or two or however long. And I said, but if I do, can I come back here and I graduate? And it's like, but it's impossible. And I was like, okay, but you're saying that I can. And so I literally was able to do a year's worth of work for seven classes in one week. I don't know how I did it, but I did. So it was like having stacks of paper this high for seven classes in one week. So I would do this much work every day from the time I woke up to the time I went to sleep. And they use me as an example to other students who want to graduate from their school or they go to um, extended schools, stuff like that, who want to come back to their school because I challenged the system and they said that I couldn't do something and I actually did. So they put it on the news because 
they've never seen anybody else do that and actually make good grades on everything. Yeah. Because I didn't want to go to school anymore. I wanted to go and work and create. So that's what I did. And then I came back to school the last week and turned in all the work for the year. And they just thought it was um, amazing. Which I, I, thought, I thought it was dope. It was like, I don't know how I did that <laughs> at that time, but I was determined. You know, when you have a goal and you set your mind to something, you can pretty much do anything. And I think that was the example that they, that they were using for people going to even continuation schools or on home studies or whatever program that was attached to the school that you can actually get this work done faster than you think. If you think that you can't graduate and you need all this time and you can't do it, this girl just did this in a day. She did this whole entire course in one day. And so not that everybody should wait that long to do it. To me, I was busy. I was working on what I really wanted to do. But it's possible for you to do anything you put your mind to. So I think that's why the news sort of, like, I don't know who told the news to come and do that or told them about the story, but that's what happened. Limitations is only what you create, right? And you yeah. have to be able to, uh, yeah. to that. so that's, that's absolutely amazing. Um, Thank you. But that night in particular, um, right. was, was a, a pretty tough night to, to say the least, right? And, uh, you speak about it in your book, but I kind of want you to go through it like okay. in your own words as you kind of recollect that um, that moment. Yeah. So that night was the night that I got raped. Um, so what happened was I, I had met a guy who was a pizza delivery guy, and he was super nice to me, super cool. And because after my graduation, nobody was really talking to me. He was like, hey, I do these clubs on the weekends. And, you know, if you want to come to my club, I'll totally bring you. You can just hang out and you can do something for your graduation night. And I was like, oh, man, that sounds cool. So he came and he picked me up. I was, when I told tell you I was treated like royalty, it was so fun. I had the best time. Um, It was, it was an amazing, amazing night. But after that, he took me to his house and he wouldn't take me home. And so I'm at his house sitting in the living room and there's about well, maybe like 10 dudes, 10 other guys in there. I'm the only girl. Just a house just full of dudes. <laughs> it's just, and me. And I remember just sitting kind of in the middle of the floor on a, like a little fold up chair and I was like, you know, can you take me home? And then it got later and later and later and later. So it's like four in the morning. You know, it's, it's late. And everybody's just like, I don't feel like taking you. Like, it's almost like he completely changed into a whole nother person. It was like this really nice, yeah, anything you want to do. You can have drinks, you can have food, you can have whatever. And, and it was like, I don't feel like taking you home. It was just like, okay, I don't even know where I am. You know, I have a sense of the area, but like, I don't know how to get home from here. I don't have a car or anything like that. And, you know, he ended up raping me, but I think what made it worse was within the saying to stop and, you know, like letting all, all the words that you use to try to get someone to stop. There was, we were in like a loft sort of um, place. 
So like you can look, it's like the ceilings don't go to the ceiling. You can look over into the next room. Okay. If you climb high enough, you can look over into the next room. So while he was raping me, the, uh, like a couple of the guys were filming it from up top and laughing as if it was funny. And I think that was devastating. It makes you feel an enormous amount of shame and guilt and um, blame, not just for what's happening, but for yourself. Like you start to blame yourself for even being there. Um, everything, you just feel, you just feel sort of, you lose a lot of self-worth in, in that moment. And for the fact that nobody said anything, nobody said, hey dude, that's enough, stop. Like, don't do that, like this is not cool. No one said anything out of all 10 people that were there. Everybody knew what was happening. No one had nothing to say. And then he dropped me off at the bus stop. I'm bleeding. I'm, I'm just all messed up. And I have to go home. And people are mad at me for not coming home. And I never said anything. Because when I was younger, I had already lost my voice. Nobody believed me then. I didn't feel like they were going to believe me now. You know? So, so it never occurred to you to tell anyone, to file a report, to... I wasn't taught that. I wasn't taught that um, something happens to you. You make sure you say something. I had already been in a foster home for something that, you know, happened. I had, you know, as far as with my dad is concerned. I had already been through this whole sexual abuse process for something that didn't happen. And then being told that I did something by multiple people and trying to defend myself and they're telling me that I'm a liar. I didn't, I didn't say anything. Mm. I just, I was silent and numb. Wow. You know, you just kind of like, I will move past it. And I never spoke to him again. Nothing. All right, so you, you had that experience. Um, definitely a traumatic experience. So by <laughs> end, really, um, you've been through a lot, right? Right. You've been through a lot with um, sexual assault, being, being abused um, mentally, physically, um, being raped, lost your voice, 18 years old, you graduate, and you transition into the music space. Yeah. The music industry. What was that experience like being in a pretty much male-dominated industry? Um, you being a singer-songwriter, being in studios, what was that experience like for you? Um, so when you transfer, when I transferred into music, it was still my escape, you know, from even when I was younger. So like, that's where I wrote what I would feel or what I was going through or, um, it, it was short stories and it was songs and I love to sing. It was, a, it was a way for me to express myself and people listen, you know what I'm saying? Like they didn't know what was real or what was fake but they love the melody. 
you know, people love the music. Um, so going into a space where, sorry, this back in, going into space where um, everything is male dominated, you have to be clever because for me, when I was going through it, it was like, well, if you're not even trying to act like you want to flirt with me or act like you want to get with me, they don't want to work with you. And I always felt like I'm talented. So I never exchanged sex for music or, or things like that. I was just always around industry people because that's what I did. But I never felt like I had to exchange that for my talent. Cause I was like, I'm good. Like I'm talented. Like I don't have to do that. So that's how I always felt. But I also didn't go very far because I didn't. That makes sense. So like I wouldn't get certain records. And so that's how I, I changed from being a singer to a songwriter. Because when you're a singer, it's kind of like you need them. When you're a songwriter, they need you. Every producer needs songwriters for the most part. Um, some producers write, but I stopped saying I was an artist and I started saying I was a writer. And that's how I was able to be around more people and sort of navigate not being um, manipulated or trying to, people trying to manipulate me with that because I wasn't the star, I wasn't the starving artist, I was the songwriter. So. so you're in a you're in a space where you again you've had a lot of things going against you did you feel at any point especially being around all these men men flirting with you that you were in need of love so to speak so did you feel maybe not from them necessarily but did you feel like you were lacking love so you found things in maybe places you shouldn't have of course I think with, with every woman who has a, or man, who has a void, you're always seeking to fill it. It could be with substances, it could be with people, it could be with food, it could be with whatever, right? So for me, I am, I love, I love love. I love to feel love. I, I'm, a, I'm a lover of love, right? But I also felt ignored and I also felt like people didn't see me and, you know, unless I was doing something that was creative or on a platform, that's the only time people saw me. But in everyday life, nobody saw me or heard me. I didn't matter. But if I was a star or if I was doing a show or a talent show, if I was singing or, you know, doing something creative, they saw me, right? So my real life was lacking love my professional life was getting attention does that make sense yes, yes. so no go ahead no 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 i don't I mean to cut you off <laughs> it's okay so I, I feel like i always wanted to just have somebody who just loved me like i'm very much so like a relationship type of person so i, I wanted that but i didn't really have much experience with it so i would meet people who would give me a little time and a little attention, listen to me and be really kind and sweet. Cause I was, I had grown accustomed to aggressive, abusive um, type of love attention. So when somebody gave me 
just kindness and loving and gentle. I was like, oh, you really like me. Just very naive and gullible, I know. But like, and I, and I can't, I can say that I know a lot of women who are like that, whether we choose to admit it or not. We get a, somebody who listens to us, because that's what we all want. Man who listens to us, love on us for who we are, say sweet things, look at you a certain way, treat you a certain way. You know, like just, you want all that stuff. But I found out in Hollywood that it was very temporary until they got what they wanted. And after they got what they wanted, they will not even speak to you no more. I didn't know that. I didn't have nobody teach me. I didn't have nobody tell me the difference. But I also didn't have as much self-worth. So I didn't, I, I don't feel like I was taught self-worth when it comes to my own body and how sacred I am and how valuable and how worthy I am with or without you. I didn't have that, that inner self-confidence and worthiness. I, I, I was never really taught that. I don't know how many, I don't know if anybody in my family has really been taught that. You know, back then, I don't think they had those tools to even teach me. We weren't given that as women. So I think people were allowed to infiltrate those weaknesses that I had until I caught on. It was like, oh man, just got played. And they would try different ways. Some of them are patient. It would be a couple of months with this one, you know, before they actually got me to be open enough or, or whatever it is and that that gullibleness and that um lack of maturity worthiness that, and I'm gonna keep saying worthiness because it's so important right now I think a lot of us are lacking an increasing amount of self-worth like we don't even realize how valuable we actually are just by ourselves how much how enough we are like I am enough just like this I am powerful just like this I am worthy just like this you should respect me and I'm not afraid of you leaving me if you don't like my you know you don't like my boundaries we're afraid of people leaving because we don't want to be by ourselves again we grow accustomed to dysfunction I grew up in dysfunction so I knew how to function in dysfunction better than functional stuff. If there was no dysfunction, then I probably would create some dysfunction unconsciously. I don't know normal stuff. That's not how I grew up. I didn't grow up with like a normal life without a bunch of dysfunctional stuff. And most people are like that. We don't know how to have healthy relationships. People think love is fighting. They love me if they fight for me. No, <laughs> you don't have to fight for somebody. You have to work with people. You have to love them through things. You have to negotiate with people. You have to set boundaries with people. Like those things are love. You have to communicate effectively with people. That's, you know, and not to get off into a long tangent, but that's, that's, good. that's some of the, the things that I got from that. And you speak uh, pretty extensively about uh, two particular men. Um, right at least within your 20s in, in, that, in your book. Um, and I wanna start, let's start with uh, your child's father. You, you do have a, a son. Uh, how old is he now, seven? He's 13. 13, oh, he was seven then probably when he was three. Okay, 13. 
geez, why did I think he was seven? What did I read about? I read something. Okay, so he's 13 now. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, that particular night, your, your child's um, father, he, he's, he's you, and you don't, and I'm actually curious, and you don't have to necessarily go too deep into this, but you speak freely with other names, with other people. Is there a particular reason? Is this just for privacy? Why it's no. Okay, I was just curious. I, in Redefining Strong, I knew that I could say a bunch of names and get a lot of attention. My book could be super blown up just off of mentioning people's names, right? And what they did or didn't do. But my purpose for the book was to help people to heal and grow through my experiences, not not necessarily publicity yeah not necessarily trying to use the person i wanted to use the experience to help other people to heal more so than bashing other people like i don't need i don't need them to sell my book or to um, help other people to heal they weren't important their names were important to me they may be to other people but they weren't important to me and i didn't want whatever i wrote to be based around those people. I wanted it to be powerful on its own. I wanted it to send a very clear message without name dropping. And whoever it was for, they would get it versus people who were going to try to use it to exploit it. So I, 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 I didn't say anybody's name in the book, actually. I was very clear to not use their names. Yeah, I guess because it was a high-profile producer. Because uh, actually, somebody yeah. from my club, they're like, "Do you know the person's name?" Because I know she mentioned. It was I've mentioned it before. Yeah. Uh, I was like, I was like, no, I actually have no idea. Um, so, and was- I loved it that way because I didn't want to be attached to him. No, which mm-hmm. makes like I, I don't want his his type of publicity. <laughs> I want healing and growth and expansion. I don't want. That is a very minuscule part of my, my vibration. I don't even want you in it. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want that energy in it. So I try to stray away from people know who it is. Like, I don't have a problem saying who it is. But in my book, I was very careful not to put it in there mm-hmm. because I didn't want, I didn't want that energy. I wanted the book to organically be for healing and growth and expansion and not, um, not exploitation. You know, but I also wanted to be honest in my experiences in telling the stories. Um, so I know you probably wanted me to tell a story about about how my son got here. Yeah, yeah. So I was gonna <laughs> that process. I know, like I, I thought about that. So I was like, oh, let me mention because I was curious. But yeah, um, you know, yeah, through that process, right? You're you're with um, you, you're working with a ton of different people um, with right. industry, and now this particular person is a pretty high profile producer. Right. Okay. So uh, producer. very high profile producer. Um, so here's how that happened. I used to go to different recording studios and I would record in some of the biggest recording studios with some of the biggest producers. He wasn't one of them. His partner was one of them that I was working with. And they shared a studio. It was one of the biggest studios in Los Angeles. And so I would go to the studio every day and I would see him, but I couldn't stand him. When I tell you I had a disgust 
for who became my son's father, which sounds ridiculous, but this is, this is another part of how the brain plays tricks or how, not even the brain, but how people are allowed to manipulate and play tricks on you and how your voids also open you up to get taken advantage of or to be um, immature or to be naive in certain experiences. My void for love and attention and for someone to see me and talk to me, be kind to me and sweet to me and hear me, that kept popping up, you know? So people see that as a, a weakness. They could smell it from, especially powerful people, they could smell it from a mile away. If you need love or attention or you are lacking self-worth, you know, but they also see your spark and they also see what makes you special, but they're going to try to steal it from you anyway. It's, it happens a lot. This whole me too thing is happening a lot. You know, like I get it. So with him, I remember I was disgusted by him. I didn't like him because he was so pompous and so rude and disrespectful and mean. I didn't have to work with him. I worked his partner who was super cool and nice and you know, never came on to me. It was just like, well, let's see what you got. So I felt like I had an opportunity to write with some of the biggest producers in the world at that time, the biggest. And so I was working hard. I mean, I was writing away every single chance I got. I was sitting in that studio for hours and days in the corner writing songs. Wherever I could fit myself to where I was not heard, not seen, I'll be writing songs, listening to beats. You barely even saw that I was there, right? I remember one day he came in and he was like, why are you here? And I was like, cause I write songs. And so he was like, who told you you could be in my studio? And I was like, your partner did. You know, I'm like all scared. And so I was like, your partner did. Cause he was so mean and, um, and powerful though. You mm -hmm. walking around with fur coats on and who told you sunglasses and just very extra, you know, but very talented. So you had to respect him on a talent level. You can't take that away from him. So he's like, write a song then. You got, you got 15, 20 minutes. And I'm like, okay, okay. He gave me a beat, he came back. He's like, you didn't write this. And I was like, yeah, I did. And I think after that, he was cool with me. Kind of gave a little respect. Right, because I actually, did it in that time frame and he saw a check you know a potential check right these are what the songwriters are around to do um so i remember one day so i was allowed to be around so one day we got to go to his house he had this huge mansion and in, in hollywood hills and he had this infinity pool and so everybody was like me and my friends we were all at the house i'm cold they in the pool at night. I'm cold. I don't want to be in the pool at night. I go in the house. He comes in and sits with me for hours and just talks. And he's making frozen pizzas. He is playing to the insecurities that I had, you know, to get whatever he wanted. He's talking about music. He's asking me questions about my life. So now I'm feeling seen and I'm feeling heard. And I think this person likes me as a part, like he really act, is acting like he likes me. 
right? We ended up having sex. He didn't force me to do anything. We ended up doing it. And we're laying there and we're cuddling and I'm like, this is really nice. I feel so loved and cared about. Naive, right? But he is making me feel all of these feelings. But he's getting these feelings in return because I also didn't know that like, sometimes when you have like a very big uh, gift when it comes to loving people, they want it from you. They absorb it and then they are done with you. So he's getting the same thing that he needs, right? Then like six in the morning, he's tapping on my shoulders like, you gotta go. Switch again, back into who he was that I didn't like. So yeah, this whole long night of this really special time and moment and then you get kicked out the house early in the morning. And I just remember feeling like, so dumb, you know? Like that's how I felt. And I remember erasing his number when I was driving out the driveway and I went to one of my friend's house, another songwriter, and told him about it and everything. And then I just kind of stuck around him more. And then turned around and kind of did this. It was the same thing. So it was a continuous cycle of the same exact thing over and over and over and over. And that's how it happened. So. I, I'm, I almost feel at a loss for words just because of how, I mean, not, there's a lot that you that you've gone through, right? There was a right. lot of a lot of times, and you know, I want to speak a little bit about uh, the brain surgery that you had to have. But just even before leading up to that, you, you had like so much kind of happening, uh, like throughout that time, even before before you went to therapy, before like, how were you able to kind of cope with it all? Like at some point, you you implode, right? Like how are you? How are you able to cope? So I write that in my book. I feel like you do implode. You saw that in there? <laughs> um, I think with some people, you cope by keeping it moving. So you're never dealing with anything. You're having moments, and then you keep moving. And then at some point, you get suicidal and you crash. Or either you start doing drugs or you start, you know, on some other whatever vice to relieve yourself of pain you know it doesn't have to be as, as drastic as um feeling suicidal or anything like that but people tend to start habits to try to mask pain whatever that may be it could be becoming a workaholic it could be um becoming more promiscuous it could be suicidal it could be um whatever it could be so many different things people people pick up different things in order to to fill whatever they need at the time um i don't think i dealt with anything i think that i kept on adding more and more layers of shame and guilt on top of what i already had from when i was a child feeling like things were my fault feeling like i was always messing up feeling like I couldn't get it right, feeling like, again, 
so stupid. You know, like I had a lot of really negative self-talk. Mm -hmm. I was even beating my own self up consistently, you know? And it, I think the brain surgery, honestly, between my son and the brain surgery, those two saved my life because it forces you to shut down. It forces you to deal with your stuff. It forces you to see life differently. You know, it, it, it forces you to, to really recalibrate if you choose to. You don't have no choice. <laughs> you really don't. So when you have kids, you're now living for someone else. Um, and, and even within that, like, I didn't want to be a parent at that time. I never wanted to have kids. Like, that wasn't even in my, my, I didn't have a frame of reference for that. Nowhere within my blueprint for my life. That was not in there. It was music, 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 tour, performing, creating. That was it. I didn't have kids uh, in there, in my fantasy. So... Now I have to recalibrate who I am. Why am I here? What do I do? What do I want? What, what am I doing still here after the brain surgery? You know? So two, two questions behind that. So in the, basically the height or in the peak of your career, you get pregnant. Um, some people are faced with decisions, right? Whether that's to- Abort and stuff. To abort. Uh, what? made you hold on but you know and obviously it's one of the, the best decisions you've made and you know that that's phenomenal but what at that time considering this the um the, the arena that you're in considering just you know how much that could possibly slow down your career at the time when you're trying to advance what made you kind of hold on i was convinced not to i sat at an abortion clinic for hours mm. <laughs> like i was not I felt nothing towards my kid. I was going to get an abortion because it wasn't big enough. It was like a few weeks, you know what I'm saying? I had no emotion towards being pregnant. I was getting rid of it. And like, that's how I felt at that time. I'm getting rid of this. I got things to do. But um, my friend at that time, who was also a songwriter and artist that I went to the night after um, my son's father had kicked me out. He, we ended up being together as well. And so he convinced me not to do it. He came up with this whole entire plan as to how we could work it out. You can do your music, we can record this whole time and then we have a baby, then you have this time to get your body back together. And you're like, we had a whole entire plan and he just cried and begged me not to do it. And I think me being, me not, valuing or understanding what it took to be a parent. You're not thinking this is a lifetime, <laughs> a life, like this doesn't change. This is not a seasonal thing. This will be for a lifetime, this entire experience. This, this act, this decision is going to be for the rest of your life. He can come and go whenever, this kid is not. I didn't even think about any, anything like that. You know, I was just in the now, in the now. Like, I don't want to see you cry. Just, okay, just stop crying. Like, that's, 
I wasn't thinking about myself. I was thinking about other people, not hurting other people, not wanting to be the blame for anything because I was always the blame. It, it, it goes all the way back to, to what I was feeling when I was a little girl. So, but no one taught me any different. Like, so. so you were, you know, you briefly spoke about the brain surgery. Now it was because of your stress, at least if I read it correctly, because of like the high stress in which you were dealing with, you ultimately kind of made yourself sick. Um, yeah. headaches and yeah, um, kind of talk to me about exactly what happened there. I know you said you spoke with your gynecologist and kind of vented uh, with yeah. your gynecologist. Kind of walk me through that a little bit. So the first thing I want to say is that whatever you have not dealt with in the natural, whatever's floating around in your mind can and will manifest in your body as a sickness. Mm. It could be overweight. It could be diabetes. It could be panic attacks and anxiety. Whatever you have not dealt with is going to manifest in your body in some way. Mm. So if you're sick in your head or your spirit, or your emotions it's going to manifest physically some sort of way. That is what I've learned a lot. <laughs> and it's not just happened once, it's happened multiple times. And, and it's always when I'm going through something, I get sick. When I'm going through something and I'm not expressing myself, I'm not speaking up, if I'm not standing up for myself, if I'm not changing um, whatever needs to be changed based off of the warning signs that I'm getting. I get sick. That's what I learned. It, it don't matter what it is. I'm in the dang on hospital for something. So with the brain surgery, I, um, I started having headaches. My ears were ringing and buzzing. My, um, every time I would lean back, it was like, zzz, 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 and I thought it was, that's what I would hear in my head. I thought it was on the outside, like the refrigerator or the TV or like a PlayStation or something, but it was in my head. So my brain was malfunctioning and I didn't know why, but I didn't know that until I went to my gynecologist and I said, I had a headache for two, for two weeks. I had a headache. And um, he said, well, that's not normal. And so he sent me for MRIs and I found out that I had an AVM. And it's when your veins and your arteries form like a, a cluster like this and they're supposed to be like this. So it's supposed to take blood to and from your brain, blood and oxygen to and from your brain. And mines couldn't get through. So it was like a vein is going like this and it can't, so it has to find a way to reroute itself. So it's, it's kind of like causing turbulence in my head. And the more stressed out I got, the more I cried or the more extreme emotion I got, it's, it started to swell. And when it got bigger, I caused all the problems. So then I had to have brain surgery. I had to have two. Yeah, two brain surgeries. Yeah. Speak about having to, having to decide. Um, you had two options, which was the, uh, I guess, the longer healing process, mm -hmm. the shorter. But the, can you kind of go through that a little bit? Yeah. So there were two different processes. One was to cut it out, the mass out. 
or the other was to go through my femoral artery and to glue it off and it would break and radiate it a couple of days later and it was to break across break apart over the course of two years slowly and the differences were if they were to cut into my head then there was a high chance i wouldn't be able to put things together so everything i do is putting things together creativity writing sentences um songs uh artistry designing whatever it was i would probably have a hard time putting those two pieces together or um even forming sentences and then the other one there was a chance that i would be weaker on one side so my face could droop or my um i wouldn't be able to walk as, or have as much strength on one side or my eyes could do something weird like there was all these different reasons so i chose the longer way i was like if i'm weaker on one side cool but i cannot chance not being able to put things together <laughs> like i can't live not being able to form a sentence or communicate or create like i love to create it gives me life i wouldn't want to live if i couldn't create what would i do if i couldn't experience or create anything so that was my my two options you you said your son in the brain surgery basically saved your life you know right. allows you to be still right you you had the brain surgery after the brain surgery you decided to take a move you know yes and you moved to Miami i did Miami to be around water you're on water kind yeah. of speak to me about that by the way california also has water as well so there yes but it's cold water and i don't like cold water okay so it's Thanks. a little bit different so i remember i was saying like i like to be in warm water in the bathtub so it's different than being in a pool um because it calms me so with the with the brain surgery that i chose with the longer two years it's basically you can't get too excited you can't cry you can't um laugh too hard because your your blood vessels swell i mean those like people start crying their face turns red they laugh or they would get a headache if you laugh too hard so i had to be very neutral in emotion so i had to quit wherever i was and i went to a place that i felt like was the calmest place for me and i love water but the water is warm so i actually could actually walk around in the water or you know look at it so i wanted to be around that so when i woke up from brain surgery i said i'm moving i was literally still being wheeled down the hallway back to my room and i was like i'm moving to miami when i woke up and um it was also during that time with my son that i got to actually know him cuz i didn't really know him he was like 3 so i didn't really know him because i was always so focused on my music so being that i wasn't working on anything else i was healing i was also getting to know his little personality and like he's quite funny and interesting and he's very loving and kind i didn't know all that it was just kind of like coexisting with a roommate that i had to take care of before and plus i was a little bitter over a lot of things that had taken place around him and i was always just trying to protect him but even with that like even when i was um going through brain surgery well about to go through brain surgery and i had to make my living will and trust and all that stuff i was afraid of dying that creeped me out that i had no fear of dying the only thing that made me sad or made me cry when i was 
filling out these forms and papers was that he wouldn't have me. He had nobody else. Yes, he has no family, but like in his little mind, in his world, I was his world. And that would make me cry. You, you spoke about, you know, in speaking about that, I remember you said in the book, um, you created like little videos or little, uh, little I filmed the whole thing. Yeah, because I didn't know if I was going to die or not because you, you have to sign paperwork because they were going, they were fishing this thing past my heart. And so there was a percent of 50% chance that I wasn't going to make it. Wow. You know, so it's, and I remember even being asleep when they were doing the surgery and I floated off to some far place. I don't know where I was, but I loved it. And they were calling me for a very long time to wake up and I totally ignored them. So I feel like sometimes there are some experiences where you actually have a choice on whether you want to come back or not. And that was a moment where I chose to come back because I remember waking up and them being like, we've, we've been calling you for so long. You scared us. We've been, cause they call your name to kind of wake you up. They, they slowly say your name over and over and over. Until you, until you start to hear it. It sounds really far away when you're in that space. And then it gets closer and closer and closer and you can choose to ignore it or you can choose to like tune into it. I remember it so vividly. I was in such a peaceful, rested, I was floating in this, this kind of like a dark, it, it looked like outer space and just kind of floating. It sounds like a fantasy, but this is so real. I, re I remember every piece of it. I was floating and it was warm and I was having more worries or cares. I was just in just this really beautiful, peaceful state. And I wanted to stay there. And I heard people calling my voice and I ignored them for a very long time. I, I totally ignored it. I remember ignoring it. And then I finally just started listening to it. And that's when I woke up. Mm. So I, I felt like I chose to come back at that time. So it's, it's a weird place. It's a weird place. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's interesting. That's, uh, but um, I've heard stories like that. So that's, wow, that's powerful. Um, one last thing that I, I uh, specifically remember that I think is huge, it, and primarily because I'm really big on journaling now. And I think right. it sets the tone. There's certain things that I do every morning. Like I go to the gym really early in the morning to start my day. I come back, you know, and then I try to journal just to kind of figure out, you know, just kind of clear my thoughts. And right. you said you met someone and she, t she said something to you and then you took it and it kind of wrote a ton of pages. Uh, and I don't want to, go too deep, but I want, I want you to kind of speak about that only because there's so many people that have a lot of yeah. negative energy, anger, uh, and whatever that feeling is like for them. So what did you do and how did it make you feel after? Yeah. Okay. So that was really crazy. So I, I went with Jonathan to this, the, the spiritual advisor I was telling you about who uh, helped me out a lot. And I was in a place where I was like, I will do anything to get this energy off of me. Like, why do I keep ending up in the same situations? And, you know, why can't I move past this or move past that? I felt like I kept getting stuck in the same spots. Like I only move so far and then I'm stuck again. Mm -hmm. And I got to start over and I move so far. And this is a 
dang it, like I can't get past this part. And I didn't know what was blocking me until we went to this little thing, this little, it's like a spiritual gathering sort of thing. And this lady came up to me and she said, you have, she was pointing to me and she was very warm. She's like, you have so much pain, so much pain. And you need to write it all down, everything. And you need to yell and scream and curse and go off. And you need to write down everything that you've never said or done or, you know, whatever people have done to you. And at that time, I'm thinking, it's easy. It's people who owe me some money, right? I'm real. I'm not thinking of anything from childhood or in my past or men or people. Or, I didn't think about that stuff as being imprints that have been left on my journey, you know? So I go and I'm thinking that I'm just going to write these people who owe me money on this paper. <laughs> it ended up being a hundred sheets of paper front and back. And I took a picture of it because I was astounded. I did this in like 30 minutes. That's crazy. Like I started writing and I couldn't stop. I cussed out everybody and I yelled and I screamed and I like on paper, yeah. just in the ways that I would have liked to say, why did you do this to me? You know what I'm saying? Like I didn't deserve this or that or it, things like that. So I just went off and I expressed myself on paper. And then <laughs> I never reread them. I never went back over them. Or, or anything like that. I just took a picture and then I set them on fire and I took all the ashes to a lake and I spread them over a river, this little river lakeish sort of thing in Atlanta. And so what that sort of signified, not sort of, but what it actually signified was laying your pain to rest. And because I'm such a visual action oriented person, just meditating and chanting doesn't just work for me. I need to visually see stuff. You know, there was a time where I wrote back checks to myself of people that owed me money because it was keeping me stuck. I was angry because when I didn't have anything, no one showed up. And when I did, I had given it all away. And then when I needed it, no one paid me back. You know, so now I am in a negative position because I've given too much that I left nothing for myself. And that was a lesson in itself, you know? Give from the overflow. Don't give to the point to where you're in a negative. You don't have to save everybody. That is not your assignment, you know? And, and feeling like you have to save everybody is not your assignment. That's where a lot of people also get stuck and they get held back. Your money will stop trusting you if you keep giving it away to everybody that you're not supposed to give it to. My money stopped trusting me, so I was, able, I was unable to even create more income to get myself out of being stuck because it couldn't trust me not to give it away when I had it. Now, and I'm not talking about small money. I'm talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars that I gave away, not like $2, $100,000 given away. Like I gave away more than I spent on myself, and I was negligent with my blessing. And so when you're negligent with your blessing, it stops trusting you. And I had to earn the trust back. I had to earn the trust for money that I was going to do what I was really supposed to do with it. You know, yes, it is to help people, but it's also to help me too. 
you know? Not necessarily just going shopping sprees. You deserve something nice. But create things for people that will help people. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like, I think that is a part of where I had went wrong as well. And that's, that's, some, that's something that I think people should, a good little nugget, I think people should uh, take into consideration. Money will stop trusting you if you are not, um, if you do not honor the blessing properly. It will disappear. Yeah, that was, wow, that was, that, that's good. You're in a phenomenal place right now, right? You, yeah, I am. You, you wrote Redefining Strong. I, I know you said you're in the process of getting ready to release something else pretty soon. Yes, my second book is called The Shift. You have, the shift. You have um, so you, when did it all kind of really completely just turn around, right? You, you know, we, I went through a little bit in the beginning and then we're going through all these traumatic experiences. When did the when did the shift, no pun intended, kind of, you know, happen? And when did things start to really, I guess, turn around where you felt like things were starting to be in your favor? For so long, you felt like everything was working against you. You know, you got a little bit, of, you know, one step ahead. You took two steps back and right. you really got ahead. Where, where did that shift take place where things you felt like things were starting to work within your favor? I think that there's never just one shift. There's always one shift that leads to another shift, that leads to another one. And you have to continuously flow, right? You have to allow the flow to happen without being stuck in one phase. So you have to be committed to doing self-work consistently. I'm still doing self-work every day. Because as you, as you pass one shift or graduate from one level, I guess is a better way to say it, there's something else that you uncover because we we're very layered humans, you know, like, oh my gosh, I didn't even realize I do that. You know, like I didn't realize that this triggers this. Oh, now I have an opportunity to heal it. Instead of saying, well, that's just who I am. And you know, it's, oh, I have another opportunity to heal this part of me that just surfaced, you know? So, and, and being committed to that process causes you to continuously shift into new experiences and to greater opportunities. So I started with one, and then uh, I would say that started around the time I had brain surgery is when I decided to make some real changes. That's how I ended up in Miami, when I started searching out for things that were going to serve me on a soul level instead of just a physical level. I needed spiritual food. I needed to eat, I needed to learn, I needed to fill myself up with something other than what I was just accustomed to. I needed something healthier. So, you know, like looking for that though. I was looking for new ingredients, I was looking for new recipes, I was looking for new stuff. And, and I'm using that as, an, as a metaphor, but you know, going online and looking for things that interest you, that will feed you on a soul level, and then it'll start opening you up. <clears throat> Another shift would have been um, when I went to, uh, not after Miami, I came back to Los Angeles and I had to make a decision on if I was going to be back in entertainment or if I was going to work on something that was more self-fulfilling or how could I merge the two and still have integrity? Um, 
learning how to say no, that's a constant shift. You learn how to say no, making a list of your non-negotiables, that really shifted me in relationships because I was constantly just in a relationship that wasn't it. And now I'm in the most beautiful, healthy, loving, soul-fulfilling relationship I probably could have ever manifested. But I had to write a list of non-negotiables. So no matter who I meet, how attractive they were, what they said to me, what they did, they had this one thing on here that I was not willing, that I knew would tear me down the soul level or that would not nurture the me now and the future me. I was not messing with it. I didn't even I didn't even entertain certain things anymore. I didn't entertain just oh let's go on a date. No, you're not it. <laughs> like it was once you know I made a list. My friend uh, Stephanie she has uh, she she teaches a lot of people too, and she she's the one who told me to do this list. And she was like, you know, you're successful in every area of relationships. And I was like, I know. I'm so nice and I'm so loving. And I'm so understanding. She was like, no, but you're manifesting the wrong stuff because you'll like one thing in somebody and not the rest, but you'll get hung up on the one thing. But that's not enough. They can't just be a humanitarian, but they treat you like crap. You know what I mean? Or um, beautiful to look at, but they're not smart. Or, you know, like, or they say certain words that are degrading that you don't like like just you know i had i had my non-negotiable list complaining all the time was on the top because i'm too empathic you suck the life out of me i want people who are happy if you're not naturally happy i don't want to be with you i could work with you i could be cool with you from a distance but i don't want to attach you to my life and my vibration i need people who are going to help me to manifest something greater I don't want to settle down. I want to settle up, mm. you know, get with somebody who you can settle up with, not settle down because that's like pulling you backwards. Now you can't go live. No, get you somebody who's going to go live with you. Who's going to go grow with you. Who's going to go heal with you. Who's going to go create with you. Like settle up. There is no settling down for me. So just being clear on what you want because a lot of times we will be, We'll say, we want this, but yet you're doing this over here. So your vibrations are always mixed signals. So you're always getting mixed stuff back. Always constantly getting what you want, but you're getting half of this and half of that. Because you are not clear. And you're allowing the BS to still have a little bit of your attention. I stopped it. And when I did that, my life started changing. When your value goes up, when you start saying no, I value my time. I value my worth. I value my energy. I value like even my, my personality. I'm not even going to be around people who have crazy personalities. You know, like just, I value that I'm not dysfunctional. I refuse to allow dysfunction and discord in my life, you know, and not really allowing it instead of entertaining people. We entertain bullshit all the time. I ain't doing it. <laughs> I love it. You should. Settle up, not settle down. That's, that's good. I'm going to write that down. Yeah. Oh, man. 
Phoenix, thank you so much. First of all, you, you're welcome. Like your story is absolutely incredible. It's definitely um, inspiring. It's definitely uh, motivating. I mean, you you probably don't even realize it, but you know, th just the little thing as completing, you know, a year's worth of schoolwork in in you know a week's time. Like that's, you know, like you said, everyone told you, everyone wrote you off. Then it's not possible. Yeah. You can't do it. And it was something that you were able to accomplish at that time, right? So it was no, there was no question really in my mind. And I didn't even know about that until you said it, right? Because I don't know if that part was in the book, if I'm not mistaken. No, it wasn't. Um, you know, just even doing something like that, achieving what people thought was the impossible then, it, it's fine, right? Because right. you're going to, there's everyone who's done something amazing that didn't have it handed to them has a story. You know, they've right. gone through certain trials, tribulations, they've, they've gone through adversity. That's kind of what makes you the person you are. And, you know, the amount of adversity and things that you've had to deal with, um, it's it's only, it only makes sense that in, in, in your words, you said something like, you know, you're weight in diamonds or, you know, just, just get like. Well, you're worth your weight in diamonds. Like, weight in diamonds. like you know, I do that. Yeah, it's, it, I don't, I believe that the impossible is possible. It doesn't matter what it is. There's always a way if you're willing to do the work and if you believe that you can actually have what it is you say you want. A lot of people want things they don't really even believe they can have. You want this house, but you're like, I know I can't probably get that house, but I would love to have a house like that. You know, why not? You know, like, I believe I can have whatever I want. I can do whatever I want. I can have whatever experience I want. There are no limits for what I want. I probably won't even be able to accomplish all the things that I want to do in this lifetime. But I'm going to try. You know, like, because my list is ever expanding. Like, I'm never just like, oh, I don't want to do anything or I don't want to experience anything. Like, it's, it's ever expanding. Like, I think people will only be able to manifest what they, can, what they believe they can have mm -hmm. or excess, you know? So it's what I know I'm called here to do is to open up people's consciousness to more, to not saying, oh, I can only have this or that. Oh, no such thing. Unless you choose for it to be that way, you can have this and that. If you choose to, what do you really want versus what you, what limits you set for yourself? You don't have to walk around with a bag of pain. If you choose not to, it's choice. Yeah. It may take some work. It may take um, some therapy. It may take some healing and growth and expansion. But you can if you really want to. You just have to want it enough awesome. yeah. well phoenix thank you so so much um yeah. time uh, where can people find you uh you can find me i'm very active on instagram so you can always find me at phoenix white on instagram um i have a website i'm updating it but you can always hit me on my website is phoenixwhite.net um i'm on facebook that's also phoenix white so those are the main places that I'm at, but you can find me mostly on Instagram. I'm always on there. Awesome, awesome. Um, before we go, uh, well, let's definitely talk a little bit offline. 
But uh, yeah, definitely get Redefining Strong. I promise you it's a powerful, powerful book. Um, Thank you. So definitely go get Redefining Strong. I'm really excited about the shift. I can't wait for it to come out so I can read that as well. Yeah, I'll send it to you for sure. I'm going to awesome. send you a copy of it. Awesome, awesome. Thank you so much. But yeah, guys, thank you. Thank you so much for listening in. Uh, Phoenix was so kind enough to, to be with us for the second time. <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> in a few days. So I hope you guys got as much from this as, as I did. Um, I know you guys did. Um, and if you have any questions, feel free to reach out directly to her or you know where you can find me, the 1% yeah. mind. All right, guys, take care. Thank you. Bye.